This is the People's School for Marxist Leonard Studies. Today is Thursday, August 6, 2020. I want to remind everybody on the phone that today is a very important date in the history of U.S. imperialism. On today, August 6, 1945, the United States dropped the first atomic weapon on a populated city in Japan called Hiroshima. And on August 9th, a few days later, they dropped the second atomic weapon on the city of Nagasaki. And that was the only country, the only one to ever use atomic weapons on civilian targets. Remember that. Very important to never forget that. The slogan for many of us after that was, never again, Hiroshima, never again. And many of us have been fighting all kinds of political people and the center and on the left have been fighting and reminding against U.S. imperialism and reminding people who love to forget what the United States did in 1945 and the real reason why it was done. I'm not going to go into it now. We'll have a class on that, on the reason why they dropped the bomb on civilian targets in 1945. But tonight's class is going to be a very interesting class. I learned a lot from reading. The author is interesting, number one. The subject matter is interesting. It's called The Meaning of Social Fascism. And I'll explain to that briefly what it was, and then I'm going to read something from the pamphlet. And it was done 1932. Depression was 1929, the big depression, the stock market crashed. And it lasted for the whole 30s. And some people claim that the reason we got out of the Depression was basically because the United States capitalism went into war production. And that's what got us out of the economic slump. But tonight's class is the meaning of social fascism. It's historical and theoretical background. And it's written by a very interesting individual, the General Secretary of the Communist Party, Comrade Earl Browder, and I do use the word comrade, the false scenario that came out after Browder did what he did by dissolving the party, I was under the impression that Browder was a no-goodnik. Then I find out by reading all the works that he wrote during the 30s. For 12 or 13 years, he wrote stuff that was fantastic. I urge people to get his work called Yalta and also... He wrote a couple of pamphlets on unemployment, and I urge people to get it. Tonight, we're just going to deal with what social fascism is, also why the left doesn't use it anymore, why they want us to forget it. So I'm just going to give you the introduction. The pamphlet is based on a lecture delivered by Comrade Browder at the Worker School Forum in New York City in December 1932. It's a thoroughgoing analysis of fascist essence at the present time at that time. International social democracy, its role in bringing fascism into power, deserves to be accessible to the broadest number of workers in this country. This is especially true now, this I'm reading from the introduction, when the complete betrayal of German workers by the leadership of the Socialist Party not only in the United States, but the German Social Democratic Party, and the reformist trade unions in Germany. 
and with the active collaboration of the American Socialist Party and the leadership of the American Federation of Labor, with the union breaking and strike outlawing NRA, the National Recovery Act, which makes the role of radical of social fascism stand out in all its nakedness. I'm going to read the first group slowly. The relation of social fascism to fascism. Fascism is a distinctive characteristic of the post-war, meaning post-World One period of capitalism. It is one of the expressions of the efforts of the capitalist class to bolster up and to defend their declining rule. Remember the period in World War I? The Russian Revolution, 1917, Russia leaving the war, overthrow of the Tsar. All this was a period of decline for American capitalism, and the war, by, this, uh, by the way, World War I, was held because of colonies and markets between capitalist Germany, capitalist England. It was a war between capitalists for markets. One specific feature of fascism itself is the open abandonment of parliamentary forms of government. In other words, fascists no longer used the parliament. They went outside the parliament, and they used the street. That's how the brown shirts in Germany got started. Reminder, 1922, what happened? Hitler tried the so-called beer tavern uprising. He used the street people who were unemployed from World War I, the veterans that came back. He used them as what we call the brown shirt movement, separate from the black shirt. That's separate. That's separate from the Gestapo. Brown shirts were the ones in the streets who came in and broke up rallies of communists and trade unionists. In response to that, the party set up something called Antifa. Does that sound familiar? It was the original Antifa, which was set up by the German Communist Party of Germany, the KPD, and it was a self-defense force, not an offensive force. I want people to know that. Their job was to protect the trade unionists and the communists from open attack by the brown shirt movement of the Nazi party. Getting back to what the definition is, the abandonment of parliamentary forms of government. It has been seized upon by bourgeois, meaning capitalist ideologues, as a characteristic form of fascism. On this basis, the attempt has been made to create a general opinion among the people that the issue of fascism is an issue between parliamentary democracy and dictatorial government. That's the way the histories of the capitalists present fascism. Especially is the formula made use by the parties of the international. I'll remind people what that is. First international was set up by Marx and Engels. It was the German International Working Class Party, the first international. The second international were actually the socialist parties who said they were basing their ideology on Marx. And they set up the second international. In reality, they were a socialist international. It happened before, before the 1917 Bolshevik uprising. 
upon the basis of the second international, of this formula, they lump together fascism and communism, and they do that to this day. To this day, they say fascism and communism is the same. In fact, the European Union recently, we used to call it the common market, now it's called the European Union, they just passed a ruling recently as of a year or two ago that fascism and communism was the same. Could you imagine that? The people that fought fascism were considered fascists. They were called two forms of dictatorship in opposition to bourgeois democracy for which they claim to stand. This formula of the capitalists serves the purpose of what? Obscuring, hiding the real issues before the workers and of diverting the energies of the workers from the revolutionary struggle for the defense of their immediate needs, housing, jobs, food, and for the destruction of the capitalist system. That's what we're calling for. It is itself the theoretical connecting link between fascism and social fascism. But otherwise, it is an empty, unscientific phrase which ignores the real basis of the different political forms. And I'm going to read a quote now from Lenin. People always have been, and they always will be, listen to what Lenin say, the stupid victims victims of deceit, of lies, and self-deception in politics. Continuing Lenin's quote, until people learn behind every kind of moral, religious, political, social, phrase, declaration, and promise to seek out the interests of this or that class. That's what Lenin said. People have to learn that everything that comes out, the culture of a society, is based on the bourgeois lies and everything the bourgeoisie is pushing. Fascism is merely one of the forms of the dictatorship of the capitalist class. The position of communists is the follower, that present-day capitalism is another form of a dictatorship, the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. The dictatorship of the capitalist class exists and has existed in many forms. Historically, form of capitalist dictatorship is the bourgeois republic. So that's the historical form of capitalist dictatorship, the bourgeois republic, based upon a general franchise. But in every true instances, does this develop in reality in a pure form? However, it is an axiom of Marxism itself that whatever the particular form of government, whether it's constitutional, whether it's a constitutional monarchy, whether it's a bourgeois republic with limited, remember, not everybody could vote, with limited franchise, or a bourgeois republic with broad franchise like we have here, the class content of these forms of government has always remained the same. All of them are merely forms of the dictatorship of the capitalist class, or we better know it as the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. As Marx had said in 1850, quote, 
the bourgeoisie, when it rejects the general suffrage with which it had hitherto draped itself and from which it had sucked its power, admits honestly our dictatorship has hitherto existed through the will of the people. It must now be consolidated against the will of the people, end quote. And that's from Marx in 1850. Since World War I, which hastened the decline of the capitalist system, various new props have had to be brought to bolster up the rule of capitalist class. The capitalist class has no longer been able to rely upon their before simple operation of machinery of bourgeois democracy. And they had to bring in other various new instruments. During World War I and since World War I, the capitalist class has placed its main reliance for holding the people down in support of its class dictatorship upon the parties of the Second International. That's the theory that's being presented in this pamphlet. That it's basically the Second International that allowed capitalism to exist. Social democracy, the social fascist of various countries. Today, social democrats, think about this, look around you, comrade, are the main prop of capitalism among the trade union movement and the working class. But whatever the declining capitalist class senses the approach of a real revolutionary situation, then that class develops a different weapon in the form of fascism. If social fascism, in parentheses social democracy, is the use of the various socialist parties to mobilize working people in support of declining capitalism. Fascism is the mobilization itself under different demagogic slogans, like think about what Trump is saying, primarily of the declassed and middle class elements and politically backward and impoverished peasant masses under the direct control and supervision of finance capital. These fascist forces are mobilized, first of all, for the physical destruction of the organizations of the working class, the trade unions, supporting the capitalist dictatorship by open violence. Talk about violence. This is where the violence is coming from. In defiance of the forms of democracy. And I'm going to stop right there. If anybody would like to speak. I want everyone to pay attention to how he says that our so-called republic is not a republic. It's a dictatorship because the only class that's in control is the capitalist class. What we need is a true democracy, like what exists in a communist country. We need a movement for people's democracy. And that's why it's important that we try and build our MPD chapters alongside our PCUSA chapters, because MPD gives our Leninist Bolshevik party a mass movement 
from which it can connect to the people with. Without MPD, there is not a movement for people's democracy to end the class dictatorship. That is all. That's excellent. Thank you, Comrade. Excellent analysis. So what group or party do you think plays the role of social fascists in the United States? In our country, it's obvious. The social democratic elements, for example, the CPUSA is no longer a Bolshevik party. They'll tell you that, that they don't believe in a Bolshevik party. They just had a study group with Lenin, I was told by one of their people, and they left out the chapters that had to do with revolution. Could you imagine talking about Lenin without talking about revolution? So that's one group. Another group is DSA, Democratic Socialists of America. Another group is the Jacobin Magazine. It's another social democratic. So those are the ones I could think of right off the top of my head. I just had a question about if you have read called Fascism and Social Revolution by R. Palm Dutt. R. Palm Dutt. That is excellent. I'm glad you brought that up. We really need to uh, resurrect that book. Yes, Carmen. Anything you want to say about yeah, it? It's an extremely underknown book, and we were just talking about the mechanisms of fascism, and it like really goes deep into explaining where it came from with the use of Bonapartism and its backwardness economically, intellectually, and such. And it really just kind of lays it all out where it came from and what people were a part of it and started it and that kind of deal. So I was just wondering if you've ever heard of that book. Not only have the old-timers heard of it, we read it years ago. The book is called Fascism and Social Revolution. The author was a member of the British Communist Party. R. Period, Palmer, P-A-L-M-A, I think it was, uh, Dutt, last name is Dutt, D-U-T-T. I really liked that you read about the origins of Antifa and the context around it. I think it's something that needs to be talked about a lot more because, as you mentioned earlier, people will try accusing Antifa and socialism as being connected to Nazism. I'm going to go back to the reading because it's really interesting. I hope everybody finds it as informative as I have. And at another time, the open use of social democracy as an instrument of capitalist government it threatens to destroy or undermine seriously the mass base of this party the communist party and the masses that follow the socialist party begin to turn to the communist party that's going on right now today by the number every day of recruits we're getting into the party and for the time being it allows the Socialist Party ideology to recoup its mass strength by passing over to the role of, quote, loyal opposition, ready to come again to the foreground when called on to take up the task of ruling for capitalism. I want to mention in Greece, the elections four years ago, three or four years ago, there was a discussion in the communist movement whether the Communist Party of Greece should take ministerial positions in the government that was led by Sarizo. And what happened was that the CP, the KKE, Kukue in Greek, warned that they weren't going to solve the problems, the so-called left government, 
that they were eventually going to collapse and support European Union and not do anything, basically turn on the working class. And that's exactly what happened, by the way. I want everybody to know that happened. So it's important to look at the people who warned you, who warned us of what was going to happen if we followed a certain road. And it's not that they have a crystal ball. It's that they've been doing this for so many years. They know the response of social democracy. Getting back to the text. Only in this sense, now remember, this was written in 1932. Who was in power in the United States in 32? Roosevelt. He just came in. There was an election, and the Communist Party ran their own candidate, William Z. Forster. And the Democrats ran Roosevelt. At that time, Roosevelt was not as left as he was later on. He was pushed by circumstances, by the growth of the CP at the time, to go to the left. But at this point, when this was written, Earl Brown is saying here, only in this sense can one say that Roosevelt is the same as Hitler, in that both, both are executives of finance capital. Both are executives of finance capital. The same thing, however, could be said of every other executive of every other capitalist country. To label everything capitalist, and this is what some on the left do today, you hear it all the time, to label everything capitalist as, quote, fascism. The result of that destroys all the distinctions between the different forms of capitalist rule. If we should raise these distinctions to a higher level in principle between fascism on one side and bourgeois democracy on the other side, this would be following in the line of reformism, of social fascism. But on the other hand, to ignore entirely these distinctions would be tactical stupidity. There are distinctions. That's what Earl Browder was saying. That's what the party said during this period. It would be an example of, quote, ultra-left doctrinarianism. That's number one. Number two, the growth of fascist tendencies is a sign of the weakening of the rule of finance capital. It is a sign of the deepening crisis a sign that finance capital can no longer rule in the old ways that it did before. It must turn to a open and brutal, that's the key word, brutal, and terroristic methods, not as an exception, but as a rule for the oppression of the population at home and preparing for war abroad. It is preventive counter-revolution an attempt to head off the rise of the revolutionary upsurge of the masses. That's why we have fascism. It's an attempt to head off the rise of the people going to the left. Third, fascism is not an OT, a special economic system, the way we've been told. Its economic measures go no further in the modification of the capitalist economic system than all the capitalist class have always done before it, under the exceptional stress of war and preparation for war. 
The reason for the existence of fascism is to protect the economic system of capitalism. Again, the reason for the existence of fascism is to protect the economic system of capitalism. To protect the economic system of private property in the means of production and on the basis of the rule of finance capital. Fourth, fascism comes to maturity. It grows up with the direct help of the social democratic ideology. The parties of the Second International, who are the elements within the working class, our class, we describe these people as social fascists. Why? Because of the historic role in which they play. Under the mask of opposing fascism, in reality, they paved the way for fascism to come to power. Well, how do they do that? They disarm the workers. How do they do that? By the theory of the lesser evil. This was written in 32. The lesser evil. They tell the workers that they will not be able to seize and hold power. They create distrust in the revolutionary road by means of slandering the Soviet Union and the Bolshevik movement. They throw illusions, illusions of democracy around the rising forces of fascism. They break up the international solidarity of the working class movement. They carry this out under the mask of what? Marxism and socialism. That's the terms they use. In America, this road was played by the Socialist Party, people in the Democratic Party who were left reformists, and by the trade union bureaucracy of the American Federation of Labor. In Germany, social democracy has been performing the same role. We cannot here go into detail of the role of social democracy during World War I. All of us know the fact that the Socialist Party became a pro-war and government party during World War I. That's the Weimar Republic in Germany also, the Weimar Republic, establishing the basis of its class collaboration at the time. After the war ended, social democracy became the main instrument in Germany, first for the preserving of the capitalist system against revolution and for the suppression of the German Revolution, and later to prevent the development of working class struggles, and step by step to hand back to the German capitalists all the gains that were made by the German working class immediately after World War I. The foundation of the German Republic took place at a time of great revolutionary upsurge. Remember, there was a revolution in 1918, and it was drowned in blood. The workers were in power in Germany. In certain areas of Germany, they were in power. The forces of the capitalist class were shattered. The possibility existed for the immediate transformation of Germany into a workers' republic and to begin the reorganization of Germany on a socialist basis. This was prevented by the conscious policy, they knew what they were doing, of German democracy. 
And I'm going to give you a quote from one of their academic supporters in a book called The General Strike, published by the University of North Carolina in 1930s. It describes the event in those days. Quote, the extremists, you know what he means by that, the communists. He says on page 502, the extremists desired to see a combination of a proletarian militia and the People's Marine Division, itself a mixed band of sailors on leave who supported the revolution. With control of the hands of the Berlin Workmen's Council, the majority of the Social Democrats, disturbed by the presence of such communist organizations, saw the need for some armed force that would be responsible to the government and not to the Workers' Council of Berlin. Hence, a Republican Soldiers' Corps was set up by Commandant Wells, W-E-L-S, from among the demoralized soldiers with funds from foreign and bourgeois sources. The actual revolutionary outbreak in 1919, but the events of the Christmas Eve debacle were its immediate cause. The more basic reasons for the armed hostility between the two camps lay in the belief of the Spartacists. Now, who were the Spartacists? The Spartacists were the beginnings of the Communist Party of Germany. They were led by Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht. They were the original founders of the Spartacists in Germany. And the ranks of the independence that the revolutionary was not really complete until the workers were in command, just the way they did in Russia. The government of Ebert and Schneiderman, they were social democrats in the Weimar Republic, and the majority of social democrats held that the revolution had ended when they, the social democrats, came to power. The government had felt that the majority of the German nation were behind the social democrats in opposing any workers' uprising, and such proved to be the case when the Constituent Assembly was elected in January. At that moment, however, the forces behind the extremists, which means the communists, according to the author, were greater than even that the Spartacists League themselves were aware of. So in this great street demonstration on January 5th, Spartacist leaders themselves were surprised by the powerful response which their call to protest had elicited. According to the Manchester Guardian in England in 1919, quote, both the revolutionaries and the government proclaimed a general strike and called upon their followers to display their forces in the streets. The government, which was headed by social democrats, called for a general strike in the hope that masses of supporters of their supporters would overawe the communists. As it was, on Monday morning, January 6, 1919, the shops were all closed, and I'm not going to go on. So the revolution was crushed by the Social Democrats. I'm going to stop right there and ask for any questions. What is the origin of the term social fascism? Is that something of Browder's? No, else. definitely not. That came from Stalin, actually. 
The origin came from Stalin. Okay. So Originally. Raised by the Bolsheviks. Yes, correct. That was the opinion. That changed, comrades. At the seventh Congress of the Comintern, Bingo Leaders, it was the seventh in 1935 or six. The line changed from opposing social fascism. The line changed was during the Spanish Civil War, actually, to having united fronts against fascism. The line changed, and we can talk about why the line changed later on. But right now, I just want to deal with social fascism. When you were given the first, second, third, I got a little confused. I just, I'll try to make it a yes or no. He's saying that fascism obviously grows out nationally under the condition of capitalist decline. And in his next sentence, he says that it's only another form of the same class rule, dictatorship of finance capital. So as far as he's concerned, the bourgeois democracy, when it's declining, capitalist or finance capital, it's the same thing? Correct. That's exactly what he's saying. To use the term by Georgi Dimitrov, when they start losing control, when capitalists start losing control, they take off the velvet glove that they ruled with, and they put on the iron fist. That's a quote from Georgi Dimitrov. So I don't know if that answered your question. They just changed their tactics. Now, it says you don't want to label everything fascism, because Correct. there are distinctions. So the only distinctions I see is what he calls social fascism. That's when he brings that term in. He says it's actually between fascism on the one side and bourgeois democracy on the other. And he said that that are the two distinctions of fascism, and we are focusing on social fascism, right? Okay. He he basically says, this is his thesis that's supported by Stalin. This is Stalin's thesis. Social democracy paves the way, not for democracy, not for bourgeois democracy, but for fascism. That's the thesis. That uh, bourgeois look at, democracy? Bourgeois democracy? No. Social democracy. Social bourgeois. democrats. Like DSA, you know, what Democratic Socialists of America, Social Democrats, people that think we can keep capitalism, but we can still have the means of production under capitalism, but we could have a social system that's kinder, that's better. In other words, we can still keep capitalism. That's the thesis of social democracy. So I hope I answered something. You did. Would it be accurate to portray Roosevelt in 1932 when he was first elected as a social fascist and that's why the Communist Party opposed him? I would say that they saw Roosevelt not as a social fascist because remember most of the WPA and CCC and a lot of other things, especially the ones that helped the unions, came after 32, I may be incorrect on that, but it's my understanding that Roosevelt was much more to the left in 33, 34, because the party position changed. At the next election, they did not put up their own candidate. They supported Roosevelt. So they had to support him because he was changing. 
Otherwise, they wouldn't have supported him. That's my understanding. I don't know if I answered your question. 1936. 36, okay. So between 32 and 36. And that could be because the line changed. The line at the seven common turn changed in that same period. So maybe that was a reason. Well, I'm trying to analyze. Uh, yeah, that's what we're all doing. We're all trying to analyze this. From what I'm hearing, he's saying that social fascism and social democracy leads to fascism, and we had in the United States at that time a large fascist movement, pro-German movement. So we had that going on at the same time that Roosevelt was ascending to power. Yeah, very true, very true. But yet the party ran their own candidates. They ran William Z. Foster and James Ford. William Foster ran in 1928. That was the presidential election. 1932 was Roosevelt. Right. The question is, what did the party support in 32? That's yeah. the question we're trying to find out. Does anybody know well, the answer? They ran uh, Reggie Foster in 1932. They oh, did. They did. I, was, I was correct. Okay. Thank you, comrade, for that. Please. I feel like I'm picking up what this man is putting down here and understanding this stuff about social fascism and social democracy. How do we best employ this knowledge? Should we go with the United Front or should we wholly reject the Bernie Sanders it's funny you said that, because I thought the same thing. Go ahead. I'm wondering which did prove more effective historically, the full rejection and opposition and the pulling off of the mask of social democracy or the united front, you know, anything to stop fascism. Okay, I'm glad you asked that question, because I asked myself the same question today, and I came to some kind of commonality. The position before the common turn decision of 37, when we talked about social fascism, I don't see any of that as incorrect. I'm looking around the world after that, and I see social fascism always leading to fascism. I don't believe they know how to fight fascism, the social fascists, the social democrats. Their prime aim is to keep capitalism at all costs. And so, therefore, I understand the whole issue of that. And I think the difference between... The book about the United Front and this is that we worked with the rank and file before 1937 or 36. The party's position was to work with the rank and file of the workers. By the way, United Front means working together with other working class parties. I want to correct that. We use it today as meaning really the popular front. We confuse the term popular front and united front. We say in our language today, let's have a united front. That's not what the communists meant or Dimitrov meant by the united front. He was talking about the Workers' Party, the Social Democrats and the communists working jointly together against fascism. Today, when they use the term united front, I think everybody knows, they think it means working with all kinds of people against fascism. That's not the same terminology. The terminology the communists used and everybody used around the world when we joined forces against fascism was called the Popular Front. So let's clarify that, please. When we talk about a united front, we really mean a popular front. But again, it's the language has been changed. 
I think we need a class on that. I think it's important what you just raised. All I wanted to point out was I do think that FDR was a form of social fascist because when presented with the business plot that Smedley Butler had uncovered, instead of actually prosecuting the DuPonts and the other people that had come up with this attempt to try and institute fascism in the United States, he put them in his back pocket, only for what I would presume the kinds of policies that those people wanted to be instituted 50, 60 years later through Reagan and Clinton. That's a very good point. Thank you. Very interesting. I never thought of that. I just want to end with, and I don't know about everybody else, but I found this, for me, it was educational. I didn't know a lot of this. I thought it was a good class. I think when we were discussing about the United States war economy, it would be good to mention that the United States war economy is a good example of a planned economy functioning successfully. Thanks. All right, thank you. Good point. A war economy is basically a planned economy, but for capitalism. <laughs> Interesting. Comrade, when I was about 11, and I know I was young, I read Mein Kampf, and that was Hitler wrote there when he was incarcerated after the Beer Hall Putsch. And wasn't that in 1923? Because 10 years later... Yeah, it was 20, 22 or 23. The Putsch, I thought, was in 22, but it's a difference of a year or two, yeah. But yeah, he was sentenced, I think, five years, and he spent two years of that writing Mein Kampf. And I might have been kind of young to be reading that, but I do remember that. It was remarkable that he could go from convict to chancellor in a decade. The part that stuck out to me the most was where it was mentioned that people who usually ascribe to or subscribe to social democracy tend to be those that categorize themselves as orthodox Marxists or just socialists. I believe the reason being is because most people that we see that identify themselves as Marxists or socialists tend to be college professors, tend to be people that come from a wealthy family, in other words, people that are non-producing. They're not connected to the working class. And Lenin actually spoke about this. Lenin feared at a point in time producing too much propaganda was a bad thing because it would be bringing more intelligentsia to the working class movement. And when you have the intelligentsia, it tends to be people that are non-producing. And in return, we get what we have today. They're not worried about the means of production. They're worried about health care. They're worried about all these things, and they allow capitalism to exist, and that's where we get social democracy. So I thought that was interesting, and thank you. Definitely a good class. We need to look deeper into it. As someone else mentioned, okay, this is good info. Now what do we do it for today? I like that. Good. Good point. I would just remark on the whole thing about how equating communists to fascists being the same thing, let's not forget about the Congress of Cultural Freedom funded by the CIA. They boast about it. You could Google it. It's the first thing they boast about how successful it was. And they funded leftist movements all over the world, and especially in America, to make it look like there was a different leftism than traditional Marxist-Leninism. They made it look like it was the same as fascism, and that's kind of a big thing that makes people still think that to this day. Yep, so thank you. It's really important that you keep the line between trying to form a mass organization and just helping other leftist groups. You make sure you know where that line is. For example, it's really good to be working on something like Diamond Village, but you would not just want to become Black Lives Matter's protest army. Okay, thank you. I really like the lecture, and it just brings a question to my mind. 
are some of these social democrats just too foolish to understand what's going on or are they genuinely bad meaning but other than that really good class it looks like it's clear that social democrats will betray us in a fight against fascism but are they worth supporting so we can secure some sort of short-term concessions for workers even if, maybe even some of those are part of a party work yeah that's the ne- next week we'll do that next week that's the part of social democrats will do next week what goes on reforms short-term reforms yeah if anyone would like to do some further reading, I really enjoyed reading this book called Fascism and Big Business. That'd be a good place to refer to. Daniel Guerin, G-U-E-R-I-N. Thank you. Great class. I'd just like to want to further extract with social democracy is built upon the blood of the world, and that's why it's so important for us to be internationalists and support our fellow communist brothers and sisters to fight against social democracy and the concentration of wealth to the Western countries versus the global South. So a, a year before this pamphlet and two years before R. Dutt's book, William Z. Foster wrote Towards Soviet America, and he wrote very extensively on the role of social fascism in the communist movement here. Oh, thank you. I didn't know that. Very important. Yeah, the book is called Towards the Soviet America. It's excellent. we got to reprint it, actually. And so there, he mentioned social fascism. I'm glad you told me that. I didn't know that. Thank you. Comrades, you should all take advantage of this ongoing pandemic. Use this book, Dimitrov's The United Front, and Brower wrote another book called The People's Front. Use all three of them in conjunction to really guide your strategy coming out of COVID, because I really think that fascism is going to rear its head because of the loss of profit from COVID. Use it to inform your strategies and who to work with. Yeah, very good point, comrade. I agree. There what were three for this pamphlet. The other one was The People's Front by Browder, and then the other one was The United Front by Dimitrov. Thank you, comrade. I have a question. So in 1932, the Socialist Party ran a candidate named Norman Thomas. I didn't know if, yes. uh, comrade Angela, you knew anything about Norman Thomas. Yes, I have a whole thing on him. It's funny you mention that what the position of Norman Thomas was, what he said. It's interesting what he said in his speeches. I'm glad you brought that up. And we're going to talk about that next week, exactly. Here's what Norman Thomas said. Fascism is not the product of the decline of capitalism. Listen to this. And the attempt of the capitalists to maintain their rule at all costs. But it is produced by the Communist Party. This is Norman Thomas. Because the Communist Party discredits democracy and proclaims the necessity of the proletarian dictatorship. It is therefore not the capitalists who are discarding democratic forms for fascist methods of maintaining their dictatorship, but the Communist Party that is endangering democracy. That's Norman Thomas. Okay? So Norman Thomas is like the ultra-social fascist. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's what he was. He was, in my vocabulary, I call him a no-goodnik. A no-goodnik. That's what he was. Unlike Eugene Debs. Eugene Debs was in prison. He was a Socialist Party leader in prison. And in prison, he said he supported the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917. That's very different than Norman Thomas. Norman Thomas hated the Soviet Union. So, anyway, we've got to end the class tonight. We'll finish uh, next week.